Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about the things that men could but don't talk about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton and I'm with my great friend Fraser Franks. And before we dive into this episode, I think it's really important we check in to see how Fraser is, who had open heart surgery. Fraser, tell me how long ago? 10 days ago? Uh, just over two weeks now. Yeah. Just over two weeks. How are you, mate? I'm good now. Yeah, I feel I'm still recovering. It's still very painful and probably has been the most difficult couple of weeks of my life, I'll be honest. Lots that's gone on uh, in all aspects. Very emotional time. Two weeks spent in hospital. But now I've, I feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm, I'm feeling better every day. And I have to say that you've been a huge part of that. I'm not blowing smoke here, but you sent me some, you know, we had contact almost every day in hospital and you you really helped me through a tough time so I have to give you that little bit of credit before we um before we get started properly no mate and um, tell me what pain level one to ten ten being the most unbearable pain of your life where, where are you at, at the moment do you think I was at a ten I, I've never experienced anything like it but now I'm I'm probably at a six in bed and at night time but during the day I'm, I've got a lot of pain meds and I've got um okay. I've got a lot of help around me with my mum. She's doing a lot with me as well. So yeah, during the day it's not too bad. Probably about a four during the day. But right. doing things like this, you know, makes it sort of drift away for me. So I love it. Good. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe somebody could tell us who's listening or watching. I feel like this might be a world first of having someone on a podcast two weeks after having open heart surgery. It must be quite an unusual set of circumstances. I want to. Um, it sort of makes me giggle. I know we've laughed about this, but on the previous podcast, we talked about, I said, oh, I might get a microphone under your nose as you're coming out the the, the surgeon's table. And then uh, we had this plan that essentially we would record the next podcast about a week after your surgery, <laughs> which in hindsight was a little bit ambitious, I think. And I want to play you this voice message, which is the first voice message that when I checked in on Fraser, it would have been not the, the day, the next day, that it would have been the following day when you came out yeah. of surgery. And we were planning on recording a podcast <laughs> a week later. So I just want to, I just want to play this. Hey, mate. Yeah, I'm getting there, mate. I'm getting there. The pain in my chest is... Oof. <laughs> like nothing I've ever felt, but... I can feel the valve in there ticking away, doing its job, so... Mate, what were we thinking? <laughs> I was, <laughs> we were yeah. You on a I, podcast. I completely underestimated, actually, what I was about to have done. And I think I tried to not look too much into all the details and the you know, what would actually happen. But that was very ambitious to think I was going to do that. I was in, in <laughs> I was in intensive care for three days. <laughs> right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us again for this third episode. And today's theme that we're going to talk about, again, is on the, the, the subject matter of, of male insecurities, is, is around money and status. I just quickly want to say also, it has been amazing already that we have had messages and suggestions from people of topics to talk about. 
And I always get a bit excited because there's a new one that comes along and I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. We've got to do that immediately. And now we've got a long line of themes to talk about, which is amazing. But I just want to say again, please interact with us on social media, however you want, and let us know what you want us to talk about. There's been some amazing suggestions and we're going to get through all of them as we can. And believe it or not, we're going to be introducing a guest or two in forthcoming episodes, which will be another and amazing element to, to what we're doing. So I want to start this off, Fraser. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think men, and obviously this is, a, is, is focused on men, do you think men worry about money and status generally in life, at home, at work? What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent. When I think of money, I think it is a... Not for everybody, and I hope to get myself in that position one day where, you know, and it's not saying that you're going to have all the money in the world so you don't worry about it. I know people that are millionaires that have more worries about money than, than anyone else, and they're worried that they're going to lose it all. Then I, and I've been in a position where I don't have any kind of money, and you're worried about where your next paycheck's going to come from. So I think no matter what level of wealth you're at, I think there is a huge element of fear around money and it it brings in that whole projecting into the future what happens if this doesn't work what happens if that doesn't work what happens if this and that and and then when you bring in the element of status i think i think with men especially in, and i'm generalizing here i think there is a little bit of you want to save face you want to look a certain way in front of your friends or your peer group or appear a certain way I've made every mistake there is when it comes to money um when I was a young footballer I probably tried to I probably tried to let people think I was on much more money than I actually was because I wanted that status and wanted people to look at me and it was that ego element of it but I've learned a hell of a lot of lessons through money I've, I've wasted a lot I've spent it on things I don't really want to spend it on things like cars and that is for status where I have no interest in cars but trying to impress people that don't really matter teammates is you know girls whatever it might be so I've had a lot of emotion and fear around money and I can speak from my personal point of view I'm hoping and I'm working on releasing a lot of that and I think a lot of the spiritual work that I do a lot of the conversations that we have about you know, what will be will be and relaxing about things and not trying to over control everything. But the status element for me, I feel has has gone quite a lot. I drive a Fiat 500. I'm not interested in designer clothes. I don't feel like I have to look a certain way or appear that I've got more money than I have. And I think that's just a part of me being more comfortable in my own skin. But I've had to learn that a hell of a lot going forward. But Yes, to answer your question, definitely a lot of fear around around money and um, yeah, I think men in general, but I'll flip that on you uh, because that is a really good question. I'd like to get your point of view on that. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing is is also diving into what we mean by status. So there is a status around material things, you know, looking like like you said, I think everybody, well, no, that's a massive generalization. I've certainly been guilty of it where you want to, especially when you're young, you want to appear wealthier than you are or you want to yeah. appear, you know, that. And 
as with lots of things we talk about in this podcast, that isn't exclusive to men. You know, that's men and women. That's that's the, that's a different thing. I, I think the interesting thing about status that that I want to dive into as well, and it is linked to money, is status within a household or within a team or within a business or a work environment or a friendship group. That's that's really interesting because I think, and, it, and maybe in the household, it's it's the most sensitive. What is that thing that makes men feel uncomfortable about their status within that environment? You know, is there a place that men want to feel like they're the head of the household, want to feel like they're the provider, want to feel like they're the leader? I think a lot of men do. I think I do. And I'll open up about it that I love providing for my family. I really do. And I've analyzed it going, where does that huge desire come from? Is it insecurity? Is it ego? Me going, well, I want to be the boss man. I'm the one who's providing. And I've really dug into it. And and I'm going to bring a, a friend of mine onto the podcast at some point, Simon Cusden, who I've mentioned to you, Fraser, who's got some amazing knowledge and opinions and research on this. But that status of where does that come from and do we worry about that, I think is really important to talk about because is it driven by ego and insecurity? Of if I'm not on top, then I'm not here at all. Or is it something a bit more primal where... A man wants to feel like they're in that position of being a provider and a leader within the household or whatever it might be. And and how they manage that is, is a really important dynamic. And in, in an age in which amazingly women are becoming more powerful and being providers themselves in different dynamics, how that affects that thing. And I think that I think that men have struggled with that and not sure where to position it and I don't come from that 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 sort of environment but I'd be really interested to hear from from a man who's not the breadwinner in the household and how they find that because that that exists you know plenty Mm. and 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 exists in a really healthy way but whether there's been a journey for them in that of finding how that feels for them in status does that make sense to you phrase yeah and and I've I think I mentioned it to you before that I've got a really close friend whose wife does, you know, out earn him by, by a hell of a lot. And she's a very, very successful woman, you know, lots of businesses. And I know through him that it was really, really difficult. He was almost trying to prove himself and trying to compete with his own wife. And she would, she would buy him things and he would, he wouldn't like it because he felt emasculated he felt like he should be the what one. sort of things should buy him gifts or buy him just things like at the house. She, she treat him to like i remember she treated him to like a really nice watch and he you know it's something that he wanted for a long time and he loved it but because she bought it for him he felt a little bit like i should be the one buying you gifts and buying you this and he flipped it on me and i've never been in that position before and i i can only it's really difficult because I haven't been in that position before. But I was just thinking hypothetically of my wife. If she was earning much more than me, I'd be really happy for her. And I'd be I'd be over the moon because we're a team. But maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Um, 
if 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 the relationship went that way I'm, I'm not too sure but that's how I'd feel at the moment and I'd be really pleased that we're both providing but it was something that he brought up to me and I was just it's something that I'd never really thought of before how a man might feel in that situation and you you mentioned before that about the primal thing I definitely think there's part of that of you know historically there's been roles and there's been like the man is the breadwinner the woman raises the children and looks after the house and you know we know that we're we're evolving and we're we're really breaking away from that but I still think that's probably somewhere stuck in our you know in our DNA and in our history and what we've seen growing up but it's a fascinating dynamic about you know when you talk about status I never really think of it as status in a in a partnership between you know a man and a man a woman and a woman or man and a wife but when you do think of it it does you know make you think of things that you've probably never thought of before you know when you talked about status previously I could see it in a team and I can see it in you know we've both played team sports I can see that status like you'd have to be blind not to see that but actually this is a probably a trickier dynamic to actually think about yeah, I mean, you're, the the example you give about your friend is is that's the crux, isn't it? That dynamic of of how he feels and where that insecurity come from. Why is that an issue? Why do we feel? Maybe it's a wrong phrase, but threatened by a woman in that sort of movement of status. I'm I'm kind of asking the question, and I've got my own opinions. I think there's a bit of primal. Of, mm. And I think when you're talking about coming from our history, you know, and, and I want to actually dive into this in, in more depth in, in future podcasts. But, you know, you go back to kind of Viking ancestry. The woman is not a, a submissive person within that dynamic that, you know, that women were very strong characters, but but men were were also those out there hunting, fighting, you know, gathering, etc., but it wasn't to demean the woman's role at all. But there was definitely that element of the man going out there and doing that. Whether that comes through in our ancestry, I don't know, you know, is the, the answer. But but I suspect there's something there that men want to feel like they're doing that mm. uh, in in one way or another. And when that status is feels a little bit different, whether there's an adjustment there that takes that needs to take place. But I would love to hear from from someone who is in that situation, who maybe be a stay-at-home dad, that kind of scenario, how that they they find that dynamic. Mm. But I think it's interesting in that: do men, for instance, in a workplace, and I, I guess I'm asking this question because I think it does exist. Do they feel more threatened by a woman than they do about a man within a status environment? Do men find it harder with a a, a woman? boss telling them that they've got it wrong than a man boss telling them they've got it wrong i think they i think there might be a bit of that floating around what do you think fraser there probably is there probably is still a little bit a little bit of that floating around and even just uh, i've been watching sky sports news this morning and apologies for bringing it back to football but they're they're talking about the england women's manager and saying could she ever do it in a in a men's environment and how would a male team take to that and I'm very open-minded and sort of, you know, I don't believe this is the way it's always been done. It has to stay that way far from it. I hate that kind of phrase. I don't see why she couldn't. I don't see why. Like, there's so but why, many... why is it? Why? 
But why don't because they? Because it's never been done before. And until someone is the first to do something, they then sort of break that limiting belief that it can't be done. And, you know, you look at coaches across different sports, you know, tennis players that have female coaches, you know, male tennis players that have female coaches, you have athletes that have female coaches. A coach now in the modern day of, of football doesn't have to go out there and demonstrate that he's a very, very good footballer. And that isn't the role. The role is to manage a group of people. And she's doing it at the highest level. It's just, again, I feel like it's a bit of ego that, you know, if you weren't open-minded to that and thought, I don't want a woman coaching me, that's that's just pure ego. If you're open-minded and you can see, wow, she's actually, she knows this game inside out. You know, yes, she's 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 been in the women's game. She's not done it in the men's game. But I have no doubt that a woman could be a really successful football manager. And I would love to see it. I really would. The, the reason I asked the question is kind of, you know, you're right. It's a limiting belief. But, you know, what holds back that? You know, what, what is it that in, in an environment and men are talking about who's going to be the next male England football manager... They look at men immediately. There's something going on there. That's not by accident, you know. It's um, why is it that it, there's a limiting belief around that? That that's come from historical times that then men deal with in a way in which they feel a bit affronted and they're a bit like, well, I, I don't, I don't like that. That that doesn't mm. seem right to me. It's it it is ego, but there's something quite deep about it. I I remember. She's a friend, a friend of mine, and, and I, I, I did manage her for a period of time. The football commentator called Jackie Oatley, uh, or she's more than just a commentator; she's a presenter and an and excellent broadcaster. Jackie Oatley, I, I don't know if you remember, and I can't remember the exact year. She was the first woman to commentate on Match of the Day, and it created the biggest storm. And the tragedy was she only ever did it once. And then they didn't bring her back because the storm was that bad. And, and really the TV bosses needed to hang in there and stick with it. And now we've we've got past that. But Jackie was the first. And, you know, it's interesting that men we couldn't deal with. And, mate, we're in this. We're in the community. We can't just point the finger. It's like we couldn't deal with the fact that there was a female voice on match of the day which is one of the most iconic <laughs> testosterone driven male things we can deal with it that there was a female voice in it and it's like what is going on there you know mm. and it's i really do think it's about the fact that we there's something primal within men which i really want to discover and, and delve into more that has carried through our history and got wrapped into ego a kind of fundamental demand for status. So it's like fear driven. You know, if I don't have this status within whatever it is, then then we're losing, you know? Mm. It's like if I give an inch here, we're losing. And I think then the reaction is so defensive. It's so limited in, in our beliefs. And maybe... Maybe it's the next evolution of man, you know, of our of our kind of well, it's it's happening already. But as yeah, we're going through society, is that men need to work this out, not women. Mm, we mm. need to work this out. We need to go, we need to get our shit together here because women are awesome and are powerful and amazing. And why are we sitting around talking about who's going to be the next England football manager 
And in the top two or three names is not the current England women's football manager, who's brilliant, who's achieved mm. far more success than the men's team have in recent years. We've got we've got to get our shit together around that. Yeah, and I can only imagine, and I see it all the time because I work with I work really closely with um, a, a female footballer, and you can see it when there's a commentator, when there's a, a female pundit, and I think it's brilliant the way that in the last couple of years, you know, I think Sky have done it really well, BT have done it really well, where you know they slowly embedded a female voice within the group. They haven't gone right. We're going to have five female, you know, pundits doing this game. They've slowly done it, but there's still, I know people like Alex Scott, Enia Luko, there's a few others that have come out and, sh- and shown like the abuse that they get. And I see it all the time with, you know, with Lee that I work with, the female footballer. And the comments are just from, they're from very insecure and threatened men. And the comments are, get back in the kitchen. What does she know? Blah, blah, blah. When actually... That bloke that's saying, what does she know, has probably never achieved any great feat in football, but it's just a fan who likes watching it. Whereas this person, who happens to be female, has dedicated her life to it, has studied it, has worked on it, has played it every single day. She probably knows what, you know, a little bit more than you do. And maybe that's a, a, a bit of a dent in your ego to go, actually, she, she knows more than I do. So it does, it comes back to that feeling of being threatened and ego, but I just, again, I don't really know where that comes from. You see, I think it's too simplistic to just, you see, I agree. I agree with all everything you've said and it's completely unacceptable, but I think it comes from more than just ego and fear. I think that's a historical thing that's wrapped in over time, but mm. I think it's come from somewhere and it's come from something within the male energy about where we want our status to be in a certain situation and where we feel comfortable with it. And and I think in time, as there's been rife sexism in different industries, it's just compounded on that, compounded on that. Mm. And then we arrive in an era in which fem- feminism has been amazing and, and has, and has um, done so much for female empowerment. But as men, we haven't quite worked that out. Like mm. as in, where, where do we sit in it? Do we just drop, you know, ignore all those feelings and just drift back into the background, which we're not comfortable being, or do we try and find where our status sits within it? Mm. And I think we're in real time, men are trying to work that out. And it's around something like football or sport. You, you see it so much because it's it's literally like slapping you in the face. Like, why don't we think <laughs> about this? Why don't we think about that? What I'm trying to say is I, I think there's something primal within it, yeah. which needs more investigation. Mm. It's not... By the way, to anybody listening, it's not me saying, oh, that's the excuse for that behavior. There is no excuse for that abuse that Alex Scott or any Aluku or any other female pundit in, in any sport get or, or any woman at all. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's come from somewhere historical mm. to get to where we've got to. And and that's the bit. It's, it's like if you're to truly understand something then you need to have knowledge of all of it. And I don't know if that's something that we've really looked at. And I want to look at that mm. primal angle of how men and our status has evolved. It really links back to the last episode that we, we said as well about sex and porn and that need to dominate and that coming from somewhere as well. So yeah, I agree. It's that 
it's actually really looking into it and understanding it a little more. Yeah, and I, and I think without getting too deep into kind of spiritual stuff on this pod, I think the dynamic, there, there is male and female energy in all of us. In, in a man, there is male and female energy. Mm. And I think there's a, there's a synergy, there's a, an, an equilibrium of how they work in which will have developed over time, you know, from hunter-gatherers, tribes, you know, as, as civilizations grew as to how that female male energy work in synergy within us and and it's that balance that is where the key is and it's moving all the time and we're trying to get used to it but we'll dive into it with Simon Cousin on a future pod about he's got some some fascinating knowledge around uh, our tribal ancestry but I think I think on it that I think money the reason I bring money you know money and status into this is that the way we have our relationship with money is a reflection of that status fear and fear is the easiest way to say it. You know, that, that kind of di- wobbly dynamic that goes on in a man's head, that the money is, is a way of reflecting that. I want to ask you another question, Fraser. Okay, if you were... I know I'm a good bit older than you, but if you were a young man now, I've got a 14-year-old son, okay? Not quite a man, but he's fast approaching, who's grown up in an era of social media. So he consumes so much of what he's, he's getting. What do you think his expectation is on what, how much money he should earn? It, it would be on on social media and for the target audience of a fourteen year old. It would be the absolute extremes that you're a failure if you're not hustling and grinding and you've got a business set up doing drop shipping or whatever it might be at the age of fifteen and you're not working twenty hours a day and everyone else is sleeping and you've got to have a Lamborghini or a Ferrari and you could be a YouTuber and do this and do and it's just uh it's just the absolute extremes. And you look at I don't know, I think even coming back to our own, I, I when I was a young four fourteen year old, I didn't I didn't think about money at all. And I wanted to be a professional footballer so badly, but that's just because I loved football. And I can honestly say I did not care one bit. I didn't even think about what that would mean in terms of you know, how much a, a top footballer got paid. I didn't think about money. Yeah, I thought about, i tell you what I thought about because my mum's, like I said before, my mum's moving house and she's dug out old letters and stuff. I always wanted to look after my mum. I always wanted to buy her a house or make sure she was secure. But I can honestly say, like, I never had dreams of being a, you know, of the cars and the, all this kind of stuff. I just wanted to do what I loved but I didn't grow up in a social media era. But I know now if I was on TikTok or Instagram Reels or whatever, what they do is they show you, they don't, you know, they're not going to grab your attention if they show you the medium. If they show you the average or if they show you normal life, they're not going to show, they're not going to grab your attention. So they have to show you the absolute extremes. And then you get caught up into that world and you're probably talking to your friends at school and then that status does come in. And yeah, I don't necessarily know the answer, but I can imagine for a 14-year-old, it's very, very extreme. 
I think you've got mm. huge, huge influences. And I've tried to have a little look at that and do my own research on who some of these, you know, the main influences are for, for a 14, 15 year old kid. And yeah, I'll be honest, I don't find them very healthy. And it must be, it's a confusing mm. time as it is. Um, so that just adds even more to it. But yeah, I'd love to hear your experience on that because you're on the inside. Well, yeah, I, I think, by the way, I think the hustling and grinding thing, I'm I'm good with that. I, you know, I definitely, people to go work, we, we've got to... The, Some the, of it I am. Yeah, the, the, the kind of work ethic. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. I think it's, let, let me give you my... Obviously, my favourite friend from this podcast, who I brought up in our first first ever one, and I'll do again, Andrew Tate. Um, and I feel like I'm on a personal thing with him, but and I'm not at all. But he just is a is a library for helping us with this kind of dealing with this nonsense. So I'm going to bring you out an Andrew Tate, who's obviously been all over social media in previous times, really connecting with with teenagers and young men. One of Andrew Tate's quotes. Everyone has a Lambo or a Ferrari. It's easy. So I thought, okay, that's an interesting one. Let me um, let me work it out. Everyone has a Lambo or a Ferrari. It's easy. So I, I don't have a Lambo or Ferrari. So anyway, but let, let's, you know, let's broaden it out. So I thought I'd do a bit of digging to find out how many Ferraris and Lamborghinis are produced a year. <laughs> so roughly... <laughs> Uh, and if anyone wants to correct me, please do. Roughly about 9,000 Ferraris are produced globally per year. And there's a few more Lamborghinis produced per year, about 9,000. Well, I've got 9,233 written down here, but we'll just say around 9,000, right? So that's 18,000 produced a year. And obviously they last for a few years, but let's think about the world's population in the billions. Let, let's not even worry about the world's population. Let's just think about the population in the UK, for instance. What is it in the UK at the moment? 60, 70 million? Something like that, I think. Oh, God, I hope I've got that right. <laughs> um, and everyone has a Lambo or a Ferrari. It's easy, according to Andrew Tate. Well, if this is the guy who's delivering the message to our teenagers and young men, it, it's an idiotic thing to say because it's not even vaguely true, not even remotely true. But if that's a guy who's pumping it out on social media, who's connecting with those guys going, everyone has a Lambo, everyone has a Ferrari, it's easy. What do we expect of young men here? What are we expecting? If that's what they're consuming, it, it's not the people who own a Lamborghini, Lamborghini and Ferrari are in the you know, tiniest percentile of the, the population in the world or in the UK. But what are we expecting of them? We're just going, we're just sending the messages to say, so my 14-year-old, if he saw that clip, he would be like, right, if I don't get a Lambo or a Ferrari, I guess I'm doing something wrong immediately. That, that'd be right, wouldn't it? That would be the presumption because it's meant to be easy, right? But then his his way of doing it, and this is where... It just where he preys on young kids. And again, I've, I've found myself, because I talk to groups of 16 to 18-year-olds around you know football clubs, he's been brought up a number of times. And it's alarming the amount of, when you say, uh, you know, I've put his picture up a few times and just had it as a discussion point. It's so alarming 
when I say, what do you think of Andrew Tate? And they're all like, top G, top G, he's the man, he's this, he's that. And it's just, and and his way of, you know, forget, even, you know, we've spoken about how he talks about women and all the rest of it, which is just ridiculous. But his way of making money is going, right, everyone should get a Lamborghini and a Ferrari. Don't get a real job, you know, escape the matrix. The government wants you to do this and that. What you want to do is join my university and I'll teach you how to get rich. So you pay me, I think it's like $40 a month, wherever it is, and I'll teach you how to get rich. But all it, all it's doing is making him rich. He's getting rich. He's telling people, don't be a follower, you know, escape the matrix. But then he's telling them to be followers of him, which is just contradicting that message. And he gets rich by people joining this university. Or, you know, I watched a documentary on him a while ago about setting up, you know, camera girls that would exploit men online for money. And there would just be like a big operation of of camera girls and stuff like that. But it is these influences and these people that, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I just look at people like that mm. and I think, right, if I want a role model as a kid or as a young person growing up, or even as me at my age, I still have real role models in my life. I look, and one of the first things I look at is, does that person genuinely seem really happy and content? And if they do, it's like, yeah, actually, maybe they're doing something right. I look at someone like him, and he's just full of anger and against the world. And, and I just I just think, I wouldn't want to be like that. I don't think, even if he has got Ferraris and Lamborghinis, I don't think he's genuinely happy. And there's probably a hell of a lot of issues there. Uh, we don't need to go into all of those. But one thing that I did want to mention, Luke, when you, just because it's been on the top of my head, you know, we talked about the male and female dynamic and, you know, what our young people are seeing and stuff like that. But just men amongst men with with money and status. And the first person, God bless him, he's, he's passed away now, that comes to my head is my granddad. And I watched him go to work like, five o'clock in the morning, get in at six o'clock at night, wasn't on great money. But on a Sunday, and he'd be really precious around his money, but on a Sunday, go to the pub and he'd buy everyone a drink. And he'd feel like he had to flaunt it and be like, yep, who wants a drink? It's on me. And he didn't have the money to do it. And he worked all week for that money. But it was like a, a real pride thing and a status thing that, yeah, I can I can buy everyone a drink. Who wants a drink? I went on a stag do about a year ago to Ireland and I just saw like the same kind of thing. It was you know, a group of lads and it was like, nah, this round's on me. Who wants a drink and who wants this? And it's and and some people you can see they don't want to be in that in the, in the round because they're like, oh, I'd just rather get my own drinks. I'm not drinking at the same pace as you and I don't want to spend hundred pounds on a round, but there's that real status and worry about if I don't join in with the rest of the people here, I'm going to get called tight or I'm going to be taking the mick out of. And I think there's that real element of men amongst men being like, yeah, I earn good money. I'll get this and now I'll buy this. And again, there's something built within it. But for me, who's a non-drinker and I was just watching this happen, it was just fascinating for me because I was that person before. And I get up the next morning and go, and I know my granddad would do this get up the next morning and go, oh my God, 
why did I do that? Why did I spend that much money on that round of drinks or that bottle of vodka or whatever it might be? And I felt the same, <laughs> but I still see it amongst men and it does fascinate me. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's everything that we're talking about. I, I think where the irony of what Andrew Tate's saying about Lambos and Ferraris being easy, he's essentially saying to people, like, if you can't do this easily, mm. you're failing. Men, you're failing. So what that drives them towards, and but it's unrealistic. The stats tell you it's unrealistic. So what it's driving people towards is probably debt, right? Yeah. So he's like, you need to escape the matrix. Da, da, da. There is no greater way of being in the matrix than with debt, than mm. if you're you know, linked to a bank, government, wh- whatever it might be. So there's the irony. It's like, oh, you need to escape the matrix, but you need to get a Lambo, which you're probably not going to be able to afford. So you yeah. need to get yourself in debt. And by the way, help me get rich. It's like yeah. a great irony. I'm going to add something to this, right? I saw Andrew Tate in Ibiza a few summers ago. I didn't know it was Andrew Tate at that point. I just, my my wife and I went for breakfast. At a, we had no kids. We went for like a brunch at a really nice hotel. And there was this guy sitting behind us, sitting behind my wife. So I could see him. I remember seeing the kind of snake tattoos down his arm. And, and he had this real energy about him, which was, I don't know, a little bit my alarm bells are going off. I had no idea who he was, but it was it was a little bit like kind of gangstery type, you know, you just, you know, yeah. and then he was loud and he was kind of being rude with the staff. And, and he, for some reason or another, he caught my attention because I was like, what is this guy up to? And whilst we were there, he brought in some people came in some car people and he was renting cars. So he was renting you know, his Lambo and his Ferrari, he was renting them on the island and they were talking about it and about, you know, what he needs to pay when the car would be delivered. And he was, he was horrible with them. He was really, really rude to them. But that's, you know, by the by. But I, I didn't know it was Andrew Tate at the time. I just remember this guy. And then literally three months later, I started seeing this guy pop up on social media with his cigar and, you know, whatever. And I'm like, that's the guy I saw in Ibiza. He was renting cars. <laughs> And I go back to this, this um, what we're talking about here, and I'm like, he, di- he doesn't even own the cars. He was renting them. You know what I mean? So he's renting them, sticking them on social media, going, hey, it's, everyone has a Ferrari and a Lambo. It's easy. Listen, I'm not saying the rental price would have been cheap, but... You know, that's the great irony. The, the guy's not, he wasn't even, he didn't drive his Lambo over to Ibiza from wherever it was. Yeah. He, he got, he was there and he was renting it and then making it out that it was, it was his. So, you know, pretty much sums, it, sums the whole thing up. Do you, if I, if I ask you a question, when, when is the most, mm. when have you felt most fearful around money? Was it when you were younger or, and, and do you feel like as you've got older and, and know the man that you've you've grown into. Do you do you still have any fear over over money? Oh, what a great question! Um, I feel like I have a really good relationship with money now, but it's taken it's taken a lot of work on myself to get there. I feel I always have this overriding feeling, which. Might someone could just say to me is a sort of blind optimism, 
but I know I've told you, I've said this to you in, in private conversations. I just feel like we're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. You know, and I really feel like that. I think my part in it is to work as hard as I can. And I do work really hard and just have faith in what, what will happen and not, I'll give you an example, right? A previous a business, I still own, but a previous business, I, I was doing a, a cash flow projection and I, and I love a bit of detail and I love a bit of spreadsheet. I'm an, basically a, a real geek and I had calculated almost to the day where each pound was going in this business for like three years. I was like, it was so intricate. It was ridiculous. And then what I found was that, and I started to do it with my own personal stuff as well, like this level of detail. And then what I found was I'd get into such a flap about the fact that it wasn't following that exact plan. And it created fear in me. And I would get, you know, a year later and that plan I'd written, not even a year later, three months later, that plan was completely redundant because lots of things had changed and moved and some things had gone better than others. And it's just the, the moving feast that is finances, right? And I made a decision to stop doing it, to just, it wasn't not to have a plan, but to get so detailed in the plan of finances and, and on my on a personal level was crippling me with fear Whereas if I could adopt an attitude of actually I'm going to work as hard as I can, I'm going to provide as best I can, but I'm going to have faith that we're going to be all right. Mm. And the more I've done it, the more evidence I have that it works. And I get myself out of the way of, of trying to go, where am I going to be here? Where am I going to be here? And actually just get into the present of what I'm doing. And, and in the last five years, that means there's been a lot of years where it's not been quite as good as that. But the last five years, I've felt a real flow and a good relationship with money where I, I don't, I respect it. I don't fear it. I know it's, 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 it's a necessity in our lives to be able to do things we want to do. But if I focus on the outcomes of it and the endpoints, that's when I get into a, into a real pickle in my head. Actually, if I just concentrate on what I need to do, the process I'm in, work hard, put my best foot forward, we're going to be okay. Mm. I think you've taught, you've taught me that a lot, to be fair. And and I, I do, I, I find myself in that position probably 95% of the time, but there's still that odd day that will catch me and go, oh my God, what about this? What about that? What about that? Or, and that, what I'm really good at now is taking myself away from this. There is that, I don't know if it's the upbringing that I've had, there's still... There's still a competitiveness in me, but I don't I don't want any kind of material things. I'm, I have no interest in cars. But, um, you know, my friend yesterday come to see me and he had this, this big Tesla. And just for a split second, I'm like, he's got a Tesla. And like, mm. but I can, I can get myself out of it. And I'm like, that's not what you're interested in anyway. But then you start, there's still that little bit in, in my brain that's like, oh, he must be earning like a really good amount. He must be doing this. And it's just like, get out of the way. Stop being silly. And and now, and I think when I was younger, there might have been a real element of maybe envy or jealousy around that. But now I see my friend, I see how hard he's worked and where he's come from. And you, you're really proud of him. But I think when you're younger and you're maybe a bit more insecure, that that 
sort of envy comes around. And, you know, on this podcast, we talk about things that don't really get talked about. And we've got a few really good ones. You know, you mentioned a new one before this podcast started that will be, you know, fascinating to talk about. And that really is a taboo subject. But I think money, talking honestly about money with your friends or family is still a really big, uh, uncomfortable, taboo subject. And again, I, I, I find it maybe a little bit uncomfortable as well if I'm talking openly and honestly about it with people. And that's definitely been a case in football. It's slightly different in, you know, like in American sports, their salaries are published. So everyone knows exactly what each person is earning. But in a football team, it's all gossip and rumours about who's earning what. I've heard that they're on twice as much as I'm on and I've heard this and I've heard that. And then there's definitely an element of competing and pretending and ego. And I would say the most fearful I've ever been around money was when I got caught into that trap of, of debt and I tried... It was the most money that I'd ever been on at the time and I'd signed for Luton Town and on the first day I'd, I'd come from a non-league club on you know £300 a week or whatever I was on. I had an old dented car, polo, first car and that had been paid off so I was paying no outgoings on a car, no interest in cars. But on the very first day somebody said to me, ah oh, well done for signing, you know, welcome to Luton, you can afford a proper car now. <laughs> and that comment there was just like, oh, I need to, and it re- and it really did, it, mm. it hit me. And the very next day I went to a Mercedes dealership and leased a car and got myself, I got myself in a lot of debt. And, you know, that, that year where I was on the most money I'd ever been on, I racked up a lot of credit card debt. And I ended up going to bed just panicking and worrying and really fearful around money. But strangely, it was at a time when salary-wise, I was earning more than I'd ever done before. But I tried to live above my means. I tried to buy things to impress other people. I, yeah, just 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 got caught into that trap. And it was a really harsh lesson for me. And it took me a good three or four years to, to clear that credit card and get out of debt. But it was one of the most valuable lessons that it taught me as a, you know, 22 year old, wherever I was. Mm. Do you know, there's, um, I'm now going to probably butcher this badly, but there's been some scientific research done on people's want of more money, that they always want three times more money than they've got up to a certain point. And I'll I'll, I'll, uh, test you out with this. Someone earning £30,000 wants to earn £90,000. Someone earning £100,000 wants to earn £300,000. Someone earning £1 million wants to be earning £3 million. At what point did do you think that the data showed that someone stops wanting that more? I have no idea if I'm, gonna, if I'm way out of the ballpark here, but I'd say around £10 million. £30 million. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> It's mad, isn't it? How how you know the mind and, and money keeps moving forward. I I mean I think you know I've obviously just talked to you about my relationship with money. It's normal and lovely to have nice things in your life. Of course, it is to go on nice holidays, nice trips, be able to. It, it gives you options. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely, it's just the relationship of 
how money and status dictates what you're doing in your life and the decisions you're making. So like you talked about in that incident, you, you know, you felt you were given an influence which you reacted to in a certain way, which made you go and get Mercedes, got you in a load of debt, even though you're earning the most amount of money. And, and that's the kind of how these things can play out. And, and I, you know, going back to that Andrew Tate one, you know, it's it, if that's the the voices that people are hearing, it's easy to have a Lambo or Ferrari. No, it's not. It's not easy. It's, you know, not at all. So if you're a young man or a teenage boy, yeah, we've got to work hard. We've got to, we've got to be smart. We've got to roll up our sleeves and, you know, do, do whatever opportunities we've got in front of us. But to think that wealth and materialism of that level is easy to achieve is just driving people off a cliff in one way or another. Fraser, I want to, I want to bring up. There was a, there was something that really caught my attention, which I know I've shared with you, and I think it's an amazing antidote to Andrew Tate, my my best friend. I listened to this young man's speech, and I actually, and it might make me cry now. I thought it was, I thought it was one of the best things I've ever, I've, I've heard. So it was, I'll introduce it. It was, it was Bobby Brazier who is the, for people who don't know who Bobby Brazier is, he's the son of Jeff Brazier, TV presenter, uh, and Jade Goody, who was a reality TV star and, and, and sadly died in 2009 of uh, cervical cancer. And Bobby Brazier is now, he's a model, but he's an actor. He's on EastEnders. And he won Rising Star at the National Television Awards just recently. And the speech he gave for a young man. So I'm just trying to think how old he would be. He's 20 years old, I think, Bobby, 20 or 21 years old. The speech he gave versus the messaging that we've been talking about with Andrew Tate, it was just beautiful, phenomenal and wonderful. And I'm going to play it and then and then I'll talk a bit more about it because I, I don't want to do any harm. So I've been thinking about what I might say over the last couple of days, and it's just, it's become very, very, very obvious. This actually has very, very, very little to do with me, and everything to do with my dad. For <laughs> over the course of the last, the last 20 years, I've consistently heard him say, because I can. It was a mantra or a motto of his, and him just saying that, it's <laughs> because I can you know because I can why not finally I must I must thank that within me and within all of us that protects me guides me loves me heals me and just is always there with me whether I've got an NCA whether I don't whether I'm this whether I'm that it always is there so that's within all of us and that's to that thank you everybody so much God, I, I love that on so many levels. I just, uh, you know, to Jeff Brazier, who, who who would have been a single father from when Jay died in, in 2009 and, and Bobby would have been six when his mum died. That, you know, that that's that's phenomenal. To, to, for, for in, a t- in a young man, you know, in front of the United Kingdom winning a huge award, and we're talking about money and status, he didn't refer to himself 
at all. Not once. He, you know, he didn't go, I'm brilliant, did he? He, did, he didn't say, I've, you know, he just immediately talked about his dad. Uh, oh, goodness. That is, I think that's incredible. And I, and it, go, it went to Jeff and the, the, the audience who was crying and I, cried, and I was crying with him. I, I just thought, well, you know, Jeff as a man, you know, like what, what this podcast is all about. Look at your son and what you have instilled in him in this grand moment. He has handled it with such grace and and immediately he's not all about him. You know, he's talked about his dad. He's talked about that thing within us that protects us. And he was like, you know, it doesn't matter if I have an NTA or I don't have an And what that thing is within him, I don't know, will be his understanding probably of God or some sort of spiritual understanding, which I relate yeah. to a great deal. But... What a wonderful one! Without trying to sound patronising, what a wonderful young man, and what a great influence for people to to hear and see, and to articulate that at his age, and to be brave enough to come and talk like that, and that that you know, not that he his dad would be incredibly proud, whatever happened, but for that little bit of payback for his son to articulate that in that biggest moment to him the feeling that I must give him but also you can see just from that one minute clip you can see the work that they've been doing at home throughout the years you can see that they've got up in the morning he's had a mantra and a motto he's instilled that belief it's probably talked about his mum they've you know you, you can just tell within that one minute there's so much parenting work and love that's gone into that and I think Bobby knows within him, and he's got, you know, as you talked about that that element within him that we've all got, he knows whether he won that award or not, his dad loves him no differently. Oh, it, should, it, it does, it does make you well up a little bit because he knows no matter what happens, he's loved. He knows no matter what happens, he's he's secure, he's got enough, he'll, he'll do okay. And you can just tell all of those elements that pop up within that. And that's probably why it, it does make us emotional, makes you emotional as a dad to a son. But you can see that work that's gone in and that love and, you know, how much of a difficult time that must have been for a family. For a six-year-old boy to lose his mum and then, you know, for a dad to take all of that on. And he's been a really successful guy in his own you know, in his own merit, Jeff Brazier as well. But it's just an amazing clip. And as you say, for a young kid to get himself out of the way and go, you know, this is all down to other people. This is all down to this. Yeah, it was. I watched that in hospital and it, it really did choke me up at that point. Yeah, it's amazing. I think um, I would like, I'd like young men to watch more of Bobby Brazier's speech than mm. Andrew Tate telling people that to have a Lamborghini is easy. And there are, you know, we talk about social media, Luke. There, there are brilliant things on there and there are brilliant things that young people can access. There's so much there's so much good that can be done on social media, but there's so much damage that can be done also. So it's just, you know, it's trying to get this kind of stuff in front of them <laughs> rather than the others. But, you know, young people are going to find their own way, but we have to help them, you know, as, as older men, as fathers, as just men as a collective 
we have to, you know, show an example and show what it is and talk about these things. And, mm. you know, hopefully by us doing this podcast, even one thing that we might have said today or in a previous episode creates, you know, slight ripple. And then maybe that person creates a slight ripple. And that's all we want to try and do is, is try and do that as much as we can. Thank you for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. As always, you can find us on all major social media platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, someone shouting out the window, whatever works. And we will be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. So please come and find us. Like I've said a million times, we want this to be as interactive as possible. So feel free to message us on our own accounts or on the Understanding Men accounts. Also, if you like what you've heard, then go ahead and hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a review. Someone already has, which is amazing. And a five-star rating because it will help others find us. So thank you. Goodbye for now.